Welcome to Reciprocity Podcast, where we discuss the backstories and strategies of photojournalists, sports photographers, documentary filmmakers, and photo editors. Now, here's your host, Brett Carlson. So today on the podcast, we have someone I have known and probably annoyed for several years of my career. Uh, Rob Carr is a staff photographer at Getty Images based out of like the Maryland, D.C. area. He actually likes a late one, which is a great beverage from Kentucky. So I don't think he's actually from Maryland, which makes me like him a little bit more. Today, we are going to be talking about some Olympics, Final Four, and over on the Patreon, we already did an episode about robotic cameras. So if you are a Patreon subscriber, please go check that out. Um, without any further ado, Rob, man, how's uh, New Orleans right now? New Orleans is just lovely. It is lovely, Brett. Thanks for having me. We had a nice team dinner last night at, over at my colleague Chris Grayson's house. We had a crawfish boil, shrimp, sausage, potatoes. So yeah, it does not get much better than that. See. I have the op- New Orleans is my least favorite American city I've been to. I I get why people like it, and I just do every time I'm there. I'm like sweating no matter what month it is. There's like bugs and rats and all kinds of nastiness everywhere you go, and it's just full of drunk people all the time that are puking and drinking like grenade shaped vodka bottles or whatever. Yes. So I'm glad there's a good experience, but I need like Grayson to show me around and I haven't yet. I've never been there with like a native New Orleans person, uh, but I do love the World War II Museum, which is there. That's like literally one of my favorite things in the world. Well, it's it's funny you mentioned that uh, I'm going to the World War II Museum uh, tomorrow after we break everything down uh, because I haven't been to it. Um, New Orleans uh, is to me is quite the opposite that what your experience of it is, is because I started coming here, geez, back in the nineties. And then when I went to work, when I was working for the AP 28 days after my first day at the AP Katrina hit. So I spent, well, almost three weeks down here covering Katrina and then was coming back here all the time as the, as the rebuilding started. And that's when I kind of, really really it became one of my favorite cities because i knew you know i started to know more about the city where to go to eat you know i wasn't going on bourbon street looking for a hand grenade and a slice of pizza every night so um then i just the culture and the people have just always kind of you know that's the part about it i like i think so yeah i need to i need to have like a good experience in new orleans and i think every time i'm there i just kind of i don't know i went there for the thanksgiving game this year to work for the buffalo bills and it's like uh, you know it's like not a good experience i mean bills fans everywhere blitz out of their mind like the only place to eat was like a pizza slice place where i paid like 20 dollars for very bad pizza you know i was just like once again new orleans is disappointing me but i did have beignets and those are always amazing they are amazing and and that's the great thing about coming to new orleans on an off peak time is the best time to come i mean it's just, it's the same thing there's a million people out right now i mean i've been i've been here uh this is my 8th day and I've been to Bourbon Street once. And that yeah. was when it was it was pouring rain. It, it just finished pouring rain, so there was nobody out there. And I had a hankering for a big-ass beer and a slice of pizza. And the place was closed. So <laughs> It was probably the same place I went, I'm sure. There's probably yeah. only a few of them. Yeah. Um, so you were in New Orleans for the Final Four. And we talked robot cameras on the Patreon. Um, 
but I guess really briefly to kind of set that up for the people that might want to be into Patreon and support the podcast. Uh, so you're in New Orleans right now running robot cameras for Getty for the Final Four, correct? Correct. We've got two robots that are hanging up, um, two Canon robotic units, one with a 24 to 105 and one with a 100 to 400. Uh, they're mounted underneath the scoreboard um, at center court. Um, we've got three photographers, um, we've got three staffers, uh, Tom Pennington, Jamie Squire, and Chris Grayson. Uh, Tom and Jamie are shooting from the floor and running, I think, four remotes apiece, four or five remotes apiece. And then Chris is shooting overhead with like a six. Uh, he's got a handful of remotes up there, too. And then we've got two techs and two on-site editors. Uh, good crew. Yeah, it's a good crew. And it's actually less people than I would have thought you would have had. I thought I would have thought you'd have, but I guess I mean, it's basketball. You can only get so many spots on the floor, but for some reason I would have thought you had more than two. No, it's just two, two on the floor. Um, most of the agencies, it's the same two on the floor, one elevated. Um, but you know, those remotes come in handy because you know, they're, they're all on the, um, the final four doesn't differently. They, during the regional rounds, you know, you have the, the whole court is surrounded by tables. Um, but during the final four, they come in and they have the, um, the floor is like uh, sunken down. So the teams, the team benches are actually sitting in chairs below the floor. I saw that. And on the other side, they have like that, uh, it's not a cable cam, but that like runner camera, right? For the broadcast, that's like zips down yes. the other side of the court opposite yeah. of the benches. Yeah, they've got a TV camera that is mounted on a track that they control um, remotely that follows the players down there. And our remotes are um, right in front of that along that opposite baseline there. So there's no there's no tables there. Um, So, you know, the remotes are, you know, 24 to 105, you know, 70 to 200, like those sorts of focal lengths. so those run all the way the length of the court. That's sick. Um, so to back it up, I actually didn't know you worked for the AP. So I guess I don't really know much about the beginning of your career. And uh, I've never asked, uh, but where did you start out and how did you get into this? Because you are from Kentucky, right? I am from Kentucky. Um, I went to um, weird story. I, I grew up northern Kentucky in Independence. Um, you know, my grandfather was a... Uh, worked in graphic arts and always took a lot of pictures. Um, and him and my grandmother would go on trips and, you know, as a 10 year old, you'd sit there and try and look interested to us. He did a slideshow. Um, and as I started, as I started getting into high school, like my senior year, I had a, you know, a, a graphic arts teacher and a dark room. And, you know, so I started taking, picked up a camera and, and, uh, you know, was pretty influenced by him because it was, it was pretty cool. So I thought, oh, this is, you know, great. It's a lot of fun to take pictures, develop your own stuff. And I decided my career path, I was going to become a police officer. Uh, so I was going to go to Eastern Kentucky University uh, and study police administration, um, which once I got there and I started taking a couple of those classes, I was like, you know, this is really not for me. <laughs> I went I went down that path. I, I got accepted into a police program and. It was after college, though, actually, and I career was not going well. And I was like, maybe I should just become a cop with some of my buddies. Yep. And I, yeah, that my one, I think 
something happened in the news and I was like, I don't know about, and I did not go through with it, obviously. Well, I kind of had a similar thing. I, one of the guys on my floor, um, shot, uh, for the school paper. Um, and he used to shoot this thing called people poll every week where you'd go out and you'd take a headshot of somebody and you'd ask them a question about something relevant on campus and they'd run, you know, people poll, what people think. And, and, um, so that, that same assignment me. for the school magazine at RIT too. Right. I think it was word on the street. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of was intrigued by that and, you know, and I was like, oh, well maybe this is something I should do. And then, um, this was in 1984. This was in the fall of 84. Um, Bruce Springsteen's born in the USA album had just come out earlier that year and he was playing in Lexington and I had gotten tickets to it somehow. So it was either study for my police administration final or go see Springsteen. So I know what you did. Yeah. 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 I went and saw Springsteen <laughs> failed the failed the final came back, came back home over Christmas break, kind of readjusted. And I was like, you know, this just isn't for me. Uh, so I went back and I started working for the school paper and I started getting more and more into it. And then I eventually switched to majoring in journalism. Um, you know, I toyed with the idea of going transferring to Western um, just because that's where all the, the, you know, the big names came out of. And they yeah, still- I'd say Western is like for Kentucky photojournalism. I was shocked you didn't say Western. Well, I, I think part of it was um, I, I, you know, had spent a year and a half at, at Eastern. I would have had to transfer. I would have, would have lost some credits. And I think some of it was because I just had a chip on my shoulder and was like, you know what? I'm, I can be just as good or better as those kids that go to Western. I'm going to stay at Eastern and, um, you know, I think, I, I think I, I think I did all right. So, yeah, I, th- I think you made out. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, you know, and, and don't get me wrong. I, I still, you know, have a lot of close friends and, and coworkers who went that to uh, Western. I mean, you know, Andy Lyons and Matt Stockman both went to Western. They're on staff with us. Um, but so, uh, you know, and that kind of, um, you know, and the other good thing about going to Eastern was is there there was a lot of opportunities for me. I wasn't fighting with thirty other PJ students to shoot a basketball game. Yeah, um, and I I think that that helped. And I ended up working for um, the school yearbook, the milestone, um, and it really kind of gave me a full. It, it, it exposed me to you know shooting group photos to you know, lighting stuff to, uh, you know, cover, not just covering games and, you know, concerts and events on campus. It was a, it was a good broad exposure cause I did portraits. I did lighting work. Um, you know, and, and back in the, in the film days, you know, I mean, it, I didn't have to pay for film or paper. So that's huge. That was huge. And, you know, I could use the darkroom whenever I wanted. Um, I, I ended up, I, I got, you know, I had some, Good opportunities opened up. I there was a uh, a job at the Somerset Commonwealth Journal that I started working for them in '86. They they needed a weekend photographer, so every Saturday morning I'd get up at the crack of dawn, make the hour drive from Richmond to Somerset, work all day long. You know, shoot features, shoot news, shoot sports. Um, 
you know, all for the Sunday paper. Um, and I drive home that night and, um, go to work for the school paper, the yearbook or whoever. And then I got lucky. I got, I got a really good internship at the now defunct Kentucky post in Covington. Um, and that's where I started. I started, you know, I met, um, Ed Ranke, who was the AP staff photographer in Kentucky. Um, I met him when he actually worked at the Cincinnati Enquirer before he went to work for the AP. Um, so once I got, you know, I started doing a little freelancing for the AP while I was still in college. When I got out of college, I ended up, I landed a six month internship at the AP in Chicago, uh, on their, on their picture desk back when they used to have regional photo picture desks. Yeah. So I got exposed to, you know, the inner workings of that. I still, you know, would go out and shoot White Sox games and Cub games and with, you know, the other staff photographers. And then there was a job opened up at the State Journal in Frankfurt. Um, and I got hired there and I, I came back to Kentucky and I worked there for like four years. Um, and I, you know, and the beauty of it is, is working at a small paper like the State Journal, you know, back in the early 90s, you know, they you know, we were a vital part of, you know, the AP membership. And um, so I was able to continue freelance and form. And, you know, I basically covered the entire General Assembly for the AP while I was at the newspaper. That's um, awesome. So that, I mean, there was a lot of good experiences there. And, you know, Ed was a, you know, a great mentor and teacher to me and really kind of helped me get, you know, where I am today. Um, kind of got me into the door. I got to know everybody at the AP. And, um, so that's eventually, you know, I bounced around at newspapers, you know, in Athens and Atlanta and Augusta. Um, and then when, uh, legendary Dave Mullet Martin got promoted to regional photo editor, he hired me, uh, to, well, I don't want to say take his place cause nobody could ever take Mullet's place. But uh, to 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 uh, the name I don't know, and now I really want to know. Oh, you got to Everybody needs to needs to know the story. There should be a biopic about Mullet, just his career and his personality. Um, so I I uh, went to work for the AP based in Montgomery. Worked there for a couple of years, and then uh, that's Alabama, right? Montgomery, yeah. Alabama. Yep. Yes, sir. And um, then they had an opening in Baltimore, and. I, for some reason, I was like, you know what? I got to get out of the South. You know, I love the South. I love Alabama. I'll hopefully one day I'll retire down in, on the, in the Gulf Shores, Orange Beach area. Um, but I thought it was the right time. You know, I, I got four, four boys. They were, you know, 12 and under at the time. And I thought, you know, this is a good time. Good career change for me. It'll put me in a bigger market. Um, give me an opportunity to do some different things. And I came to Baltimore, what, 2007, 2008. Um, and I've, I've been in Baltimore since then. I uh, came over to work for Getty in 2011. Um, so it's, you know, being based in the Baltimore, Washington area is, you know, it's, it's good. BWI is a great airport. Uh, I wish, wish that the uh, local trains worked a little better because oh, traffic is terrible. Yeah. Um, but that's how I kind of ended up. That was kind of the path how I ended up in in Baltimore. Yeah, I didn't know. I knew you're from the south. I didn't know that you had spent so much time down here working. What yeah. was it like? Um, 
I mean, you were, there was a different era, so it's hard to like, I, I like, it's hard to say like the small paper versus the wire thing, but like going from that, those smaller papers and then like a decent sized paper, uh, and then up to the Associated Press, it sounds like it was a pretty natural transition for you because you guys were feeding the AP a lot and you're also freelancing for the AP, right? Correct. And, and, yeah. it, and it was a good transition. And, um, uh, like I said, it, it, it was a, it was a different time. Um, and, you know, going to work for, you know, working at the Athens Banner Herald and then going to work for the Journal Constitution in, you know, in 97. Um, I mean, yeah, it was a little bit of a transition because, you know, Athens, there was, you know, I was a DOP and I had four photographers and I went to work there as a sports editor, sports photo editor. And yeah, we had a lot of people and a lot of photographers, but, you know, I, I always said, you know, just, you know grass isn't always green on the other side, you know, every, every job, every, every place all has its issues. No place is perfect. Yeah. Um, and I think that was a good thing because I think I, I learned at an early age that, you know, while something might not, you might not like how something's going or how it's done, you can't get too spun up about it because nothing's, nothing's perfect in this, in this industry or this business. Yeah. I think that's probably like something I've been freelance more or less my whole career, uh, minus like an internship and a, I did a weekend photo job as well. It was like a three day a week job. Um, and I, uh, I've never had a job, a full-time job to not like, I guess in this industry, at least other stuff. Uh, but it feels like that's a good lesson to learn early that like nothing's ever going to be perfect. Um, and I'm obviously not going to ask you to complain about your current employer, but like <laughs> it, it, it's, it seems like no matter where you are now, you know, 20, 30 years on, um, there's probably highs and lows like anything, I guess is the point I'm making. I mean, there, there are, there's, there's highs and lows and there's good and bad, but I, I think the one thing that I've always strived to do is to stay one step ahead of the curve. Yeah. When it comes to this business. And I, I think that's the best advice I can give to anybody. I mean, um, you know, I was always looking at the industry and the trends in the industry and what people are doing and how they're doing it. It's, you know, you could even look at it now, you know, there's a big, huge trend. Everybody's going back to prime lenses, you know, well, you're not reinventing the wheel here. Y'all we've been using prime lenses for a long time, (laughs) but that's just, that trend is going back. That look of an 85, shot wide open a you know a 35 shot wide open um i couldn't i, I can't relate i only own four 85 1.4s <laughs> or twos and i think three or four actually I own six 50 millimeter prime so i don't know who you're talking about but yeah i know i know but so i think i think that's the, that's the one key in this business is just you know staying ahead of the curve and, and just being you know, just knowing what's going on in the industry because it's such a small industry too. Yeah, it is. It is. That's like the funniest thing about the, I mean, doing this podcast, but the industry in general is like everybody knows everybody. And I think that's like something I've always learned a million times over. So it's, I bet if I, at some point asked about, you know, uh, David Mullet, I would probably find a story down here. Um, and I'm sure people back in the Northeast where I'm from, like would have some stories about me and vice versa and all that. So it's, it's kind of funny. It, it's it is. It's a very it is a very very small business. Um, but I think you know in a lot of ways that's you know in the, in this industry it's you know yes it's about your ability and your talent too. But it's 
a lot of times too, it's about your personality and your ability to be able to work in a team environment. Um, you know, I'm sure as a freelancer, you know this better than anybody. If a photo editor calls you and says, Brett, I need you to go shoot. Can you go shoot this event on Saturday at seven o'clock? Here's the details. Well, the last thing they want you to do is bug the shit out of them about who's the contact? What's the number? Blah, 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 blah. They want you exactly. to go and, They want you to go and do it. Just figure it out. That's what we're yeah. training for. You know? Yeah. And 100%. It's, it's in a team-based, any team-based job where, you know, it's definitely like, uh, you not being an asshole is like probably as important as doing the job. Well, it is, it is, it's a huge part of it. It's a humongous part. Of it. <laughs> it really is. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's basically kind of where I, you know, to kind of, that's how my career has kind of evolved in a nutshell. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I've got to do, you know, a, a lot of, you know, pretty cool things in my time. Yeah. How about, so when you went from these small, you know, college, you had a pretty, I mean, fluid transition from like college into career. And it sounds like that was by your own doing of like working at the school paper while also working a weekend job while like, so, I mean, you were busting your butt, but like, there's gotta be a point, obviously when you go to Chicago, you shoot some MLB and stuff. What was the first time you were really like wowed by something, whether that be like an event or an assignment or something, you know what I mean? That I remember for me, like when I was doing those little assignments, it felt like a very natural transition. And then all of a sudden there was kind of like this, holy shit, like not that I've made it, but maybe that's the best phrase I could think of. Yeah. I think there were a couple moments like that in my career. I think, um, I, I, I think one of them was doing like the, the all-star baseball game in Atlanta. Um, was that was kind of one of the things and 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 i think it was i I, you know there wasn't one particular moment but i i think at some point you know you just kind of like kind of look around and you you don't take it for granted and um and and i think the thing of it is is i used i used to get my stomach used to get knots before you know even an alabama tennessee football game um you know, just because you felt sympathetic that Tennessee was going to get rocked so hard. <laughs> well, I just is... don't want to watch these boys go out there and get beat so bad. Today. Well, this is this is back when Alabama was not that good. Oh, that's time. right. Yeah, this was this the was Shul- like good Tennessee era. This was the Shula era. Yeah. Um, and I, I I remember you know you you get tied up in knots over a regular season game. You know, oh I can't miss this. I can't miss that. And. And I, I think at some point there just became kind of like a Zen moment in my life. It's like I, I just kind of, you know, kind of just took a step back from it and just said to myself, it's like, you know, you've I've done this before. This is not the first time I've shot a football game. You know what you're doing. Just trust your gut and trust your instinct and just go do it. And I think ever since then, I've taken that approach and it's really helped me. You know, like, yes, I'm going to go do the final four tonight. But at the end of the day, it's still no different than any other basketball game. Yeah. You know, there's just a lot more timeouts and a lot more noise. <laughs> I I remember I had a similar I mean, I, I that is a good way of putting it, because there's definitely a point where I transitioned from like every assignment was like nerve wracking in the sense that I was like, I have to prove myself. I have to do the best. And I still feel that way whenever I do anything. 
I have a simple newspaper assignment this week. And for some reason I have been like stressing on it because like, I, for some reason I'm like, I got I just got to really knock this one out of the park, which means it'll probably rain. And then like, I'll just like do a portrait by a window or something. <laughs> right. Um, but, right. but, it, but those, those are the things though, Brett, those are the things that, that come with, you know, doing it for a minute and being comfortable in it and, Knowing that, hey, you know, if it rains, this is the best I can do, you know? Yeah. I had a great call after, I've only done one Super Bowl, and that was the COVID Bowl in Tampa we were both at. Right. And uh, I remember, like, I was keyed up, right? It was my first one, and I was alone, as you know. I was the only one there. I didn't have an editor. I didn't have any support staff at all because of COVID. Like, they could only have so many people. And I was stressing, and I remember I got right down to the wire, like, it was, you know, I was in the stadium, I was in my spot, which I had a guard, but I was in my spot. And I remember my editor, Jason at ESPN calls me and he was just like, he was like, I was like, Hey, I'm, I'm here. I'm good. I'm like all set up. I got like six cameras and like 14 batteries and you know, whatever. And he was like, all right, man, he goes, everything's done. Just shoot the game now. Like, this is why I hired you. Like, you know what you're doing. You can do this job. Stop stressing. Like, we've got the bed we're going to lie in. Now just go do your job and be you. And, like, that's why you're here. And it was, like, the most calming shit I ever heard. And, yeah. I've like, I take that to, like, so many assignments now. I just think about that. Like, you know, yeah, stress, do whatever, get ready. But, like, you know, it's time to go. Like, you're here because you know what you're doing. Exactly. And I... I also kind of take that sort of mentality, like when you're shooting an event like hockey from down on the ice, um, and, and you shoot enough hockey, you know this. Um, if it happens in front of me, I will take a picture of it. If it doesn't happen in front of me, I will not take a picture of it. Yeah, because you have to resign yourself that you you can't get everything at a hockey game. You know, there's going to it's just not possible. I'm so nice to myself that even if it happens in front of me, I know I'm going to miss it. So it's fine. <laughs> well, and I, then I'll look over and see Andrew tagging it to send to his editor across the way. And then I want to punch the glass. <laughs> hey, so. I just, you know, I just, I, I, and that comes with, that comes with confidence and, and, and being okay with it. Um, yeah. So I heard that but, in college. Yeah. It was like, it was like, you're going to miss stuff, you know, in sports and in everything, like just like come to terms with it now. And I remember in college, like it was a stressful lesson, but yeah, professor Snyder up there at RIT was like in sports, you're going to miss things in stories. You're going to miss things in anything you do. You're going to miss things like no one can get everything. And that was pretty, pretty uh, comforting to hear too. So I miss a lot of stuff. And I always say like, no, he said, it's fine. I'm going to miss things. So yeah, but it's 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 part of it. I mean, you know, when I when I, you know, we've when I've interviewed people for for jobs, you know, at at Getty, that was the one thing that that I would always ask the job candidates that always throws people off. I said, "What is the greatest picture that you missed?" And and everybody's like, "Well, I'm like, no, don't be afraid." I said, "We've all missed great pictures." I said, "It's all something's always happened in front of us." I said, "But tell me what it is." When you stop and think about it, you know, yeah, you, there's always one that gets away. There's always that one fish that you know you you can tell yeah. a story about, but you don't have a picture of it, and that happens in this business. Lamar Jackson, the leap. I missed it. Rich Barnes next to me got it, <laughs> and then Lamar Jackson stole the imagery and used it illegally. So. Joke's on you, Rich. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
Um, so when you're transitioning into, you know, wire photographer, how did your job role change? Because I think that is something they're they're different, right? The way that Getty or AP works versus the way a paper works, um, and probably even more specifically Getty even versus the AP, because Getty, you are strictly a sports photographer. Yes. Although I have every every four years I get uh Usually go to DC and do the inauguration because yeah, every four years the DC area sports photographers are all political. Right, we're all political photographers because we all have long glass and converters. And yeah, as I say, we can shoot from the back of a riser just as good as anybody. So, that's right. Um, yeah, but uh, the transition I, to me, I was always even when I worked at the newspaper, even when I worked at the, the State Journal in Frankfurt, where I got my start. You know, I would. You know, if I shot a basketball game that night, I would, you know, go in and process my film and make my prints and turn them in. But then I would also sit down at the old AP laser photo machine and go through every single picture that was printed out that day. And I was, you know, I was always kind of seeing how people shot, what they shot. Um, you know, now it's so easy with Instagram, you know, you can click on anybody's Instagram page and instantly, you know, get an idea of what, how they do and shoot things. But, you know, in the 90s, you know, you waited once a month to get the MPPA magazine and um, to see who won the clip contests and, you know, looking at, you know, the stuff that moved on the wire and how people were shooting things and uh, just the different styles. And I think that's that kind of helped with the transition. You know, I also think when I was like at papers like Athens and Atlanta and Augusta, you know, I always had a good relationship with, you know, at the time, Gene Blythe, who was the you know, the photo editor in Atlanta and their photographers, you know, John Baysmore and Rick Feld and, you know, Mullet. So I was, you know, constantly, you know, and I would see those guys at events, you know, I mean, we, you know, Augusta, we had the masters, you know, the, the paper, you know, the, the masters was our biggest deal. And, um, you know, so I would look at their operations, see how they worked. And, you know, I was just always kind of quietly making mental notes of, you know, how things worked. And then when I got hired by the AP, there was a little bit of a transition for me, but it wasn't nearly as tough for me as it might've been for other people because I had, you know, freelanced with them for so long. I had, you know, been, you know, worked in Chicago for six months and, um, you know, and some of those guys were, you know, you know, mullet and Ranky were, you know, definitely two people that, you know, I really idolized and, and they helped me with my career. So that was, that was a good process. Yeah. And then with Getty, then you dive into sports only world, which is probably not, I guess, realistically thinking about it. AP, you're probably doing mostly sports too. Um, but like you're in sports only world and you're at like a different company and it feels like Getty's as an outsider and someone who's done a lot, a ton of work for Getty. Um, the culture is different. Like I think Getty kind of has more of like an image well obviously has a more of an image first approach right versus ap and other wires which are words you know television video photos while getty is strictly imagery yes yes and that is uh to me as much as i i liked doing news and as much as i still like doing the occasional news the biggest thing for me in in was at Getty was I knew what my schedule was going to be a month out. And at the time, you know, having four kids, um, 
I still have four kids, but um, <laughs> I was gonna say you got rid of those in 2012, and the the kid cash were clunkers, and they kids were double rate versus an F150. I remember that. But for me, it was a it was a great point in my career to kind of switch gears and kind of pump the brakes and know what I'm doing, not getting phone calls at two in the morning over you know to go cover something you know a house fire or you know um you know and I could really concentrate on on sports and. Uh, you know, and yeah, there are different styles between the two agencies. And for me, it was very refreshing to be able to go and be encouraged to take chances and do things differently. Um, and, and that's that's not a knock against, you know, e- either either place. It's just Getty just allows you to to really be creative and do what you want to do. Um, I mean, you still got to cover the nuts and bolts of a game, but you know, being able to go, you know, not having to be locked into, well, our writer says in the first paragraph that, you know, the home run in the second inning was the story of the game. You know, well, yeah. I was up chasing shadows in the second inning. So that's just how we do it. So Yeah. Yeah. I was making art sauce of the pitcher pitching pitch number 47. Or right. Right. So being able to, to, to do that and branch out and, you know, that's that's to me been creatively. That's that was one of the, the things that I really, really enjoy. Yeah. And I think um, going off of that change, like so you talk about your schedule and knowing that and I'm very jealous. And if you want to hire me to have a schedule that I know, that'd be great. But uh, if what is like a day or week or month like for you? I get that question a lot from, I actually had a call with a college student the other day and I was giving them advice and that was a question they asked. So like, what, what is it like? Like, what does your week look like? And uh, I'm kind of curious cause like Getty staffers, like during the summer, you're probably covering a lot of baseball, a lot of whatever. Um, but there's a lot of like these big trips and big jobs. I think that the staffers kind of fall on too. So I'm kind of curious what your month or day or whatever looks like. Uh, that's a, that's a good question. It's during COVID it, you know, we've always been remote, you know, all of the sport photographers in the U S are all remote. We don't go into offices, um, you know, basically cover the, the teams in our area. Um, you know, fair amount of travel, you know, we do a lot of golf. We do, you know, a lot of, a lot of the guys are, you know, really specialize in things like the winter sports, you know, track and field. Um, if I jump back to, um, June of last year, um, you know, I think I did May, I did a couple baseball games. Um, let's see, I'll jump back earlier than that. I think it was like April. I did a couple playoff hockey games. May I did the Derby. I did the Preakness. I did a couple baseball games. I took a week off and went to Florida, um, because that's what hillbillies do. And, um, and then I left for Tokyo and spent 46 days in Tokyo for the, and is that like, like, I know the campaign trail people, I would have the same question for them. You know, it's like when you do that 46 days, does that get like, then the next month is a little easier, hopefully. (laughs) Well, it just, it all depends on what you come back, come back to. You know, in 2016, the Olympics were in Rio. I I came back and I was home for four days and then I immediately left for four more days to go do the Little League World Series. Um, That's right. You know, this year, I, you know, I got back from Tokyo on August. I had like a week off and then, you know, I had the BMW championship in my backyard. Um, 
But, you know, I was able to take some time off over the Labor Day weekend and then kind of slowly transition into, you know, the fall. And I mean, just to give you an example, like, you know, I do the final four here. I go home. You know, I've been here. I'll be here eight days. I'll go home off for a couple of days doing the opening day of Orioles baseball, uh, going to Alabama, uh, to do a, an assignment over there for a couple of days. And then I'm, then I'm home. I'm going to do a handful of baseball games at home. And then I'm going to the Kentucky Derby. Yeah. So, so it's kind of, it's kind of free flowing. It's not really a set nine to five. It's not really, um, yeah, you kind of know your schedule, but it's like you find the gaps in there, I guess, naturally. You, you do. You do. It's like, I mean, obviously, I'm not going to take vacation when the Preakness is happening five miles from my house. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I try and, you know, look at, to give you an example, like I I look at the Orioles schedule and the Nats schedule. And it's like, you know, I'll, you know, we have different assignment editors and I'll say, hey, you know, I'd really like to do the Yankees series, the Red Sox series. You know, this is how many days I'm going to end up working this month. And we kind of work with them on, you know, making sure our schedules, you know, that you're doing enough, but that you also aren't doing too much so that you have a good. That's the one great thing. You know, there is a pretty good work life balance when it comes to that. And that's yeah, that's nice. And that's it's good to have that support and backing, you know. Yeah. So put value on this eight days you're spending there not just running ragged when you get back and like, oh, sorry, not our fault. Yeah. Yeah. So there's another thing you've done a bunch of, and you kind of hit on it. And I want to talk a little bit about the Olympics. You've been to how many of them? Um, I did my first Olympics in 96. Okay. So that one was because you were local, right? Because that was the Atlanta one. That was the Atlanta one. And I was in Athens and um, we had the gold medal soccer. We had uh, gymnastics. So I did... um, I did the Atlanta Olympics and then I did um, uh, Beijing. Uh, Okay. I did London. I did Rio and then just recently. So this is my fifth Olympics. Um, Gotcha. I am proud to say that I have never done a Winter Olympics. um, And I really hope that I don't have to. If I I have to, I will do it. But, um, you know, I'm that guy who still wears flip-flops in November and December. So... Um, Dude, I love winter. I, I've only done the Winter Olympics, and I would exclusively do Winter Olympics if they had a team for that. No, no, no. Uh, no I'm not. I, I, I'm okay with not doing the Winter Olympics, especially after all the guys got back from China and the stories they were telling. I'm happy that I got to spend it on my little Schwartz Avenue in Baltimore. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I've yeah I've done the Olympics. I did in, in 08. I did them for the AP. I did. Um, we were team based. So I did gymnastics, um, there in London. Um, that's when I first did the robotics. Um, there was myself and three other photographers who handled all the, the robots during London. Um, which is really cool because I came over in, uh, you know, in April and did a test event and then came back and did the Olympics. Um, and in Rio, we didn't do much robotics in Rio, so I would have gotten stolen, probably. <laughs> that's that's, that's all. so many stories after the Olympics of everybody's stuff getting stolen. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and then back in Japan, uh, back on the robotic 
kick, which I, which I enjoy, you know, um, it's the Olympics are fun. I mean, I, I, you know, the London Olympics were great. Uh, Rio was, Rio was just, was, uh, was great to, you know, in typical Rio fashion. Um, and Japan was, was really pretty cool too, except there was no fans. Yeah. Um, but Seems yeah, like that was a little less draconian than the Winter Olympics was, as far as the rules go. It, it was. There it was, was. Some it, people were posting some stuff in China that looked like I was like, "Yep, glad I'm missing this one." Yeah, <laughs> Japan looked more sane or normal or whatever you term you want to use. Um, when you go to the Olympics now, though, like Getty is the official image partner. How much more prep work goes into Olympics for you guys versus somebody else? Because like. I know that you guys, uh, not you specifically, but like the higher ups at Getty, they're doing like walkthroughs like year or two years in advance before like the Olympics even happen. Yeah. And all the agencies are doing that. Um, and, you know, you you have the, um, you know, it, I was supposed to do all these advanced tours for Japan, but that's when COVID shut everything down. But, you know, you have catwalk tours, you know, you with it's basically what they call the press plus group, which is like the seven agencies. Um, and you know, we have a, you know, a major events, we have a team, a major events team that's dedicated to, you know, working with the IOC, working with uh, the other agencies, you know, figuring out, you know, when we do these robots, you know, we usually split it up like, okay, we'll pay for power at this venue. If you pay for power at this venue, we're running the umbilical, with all the connections for this venue. So yeah, there, there is a lot of, there is a lot of behind the scenes groundwork that not just us, but all the agencies do. Um, yeah. And it's, it, it is pretty crazy. And I, and I really got to see it firsthand because I was part of the advanced team that went in, in Tokyo, you know, when you go in, you set up the office, you're running, getting the network up and, you know, you're building 12 robots, you're, you know, you're installing 12 robots, you're installing static remotes in the, you know, in the sketchy catwalk um, at different venues. And then, you know, we had this huge install where we had what, two robots and um, nine statics at the Olympic Stadium in Japan. Um so there is there is a lot of behind the scenes work that goes into it, you know, with the IT, with the tech side of it, with the camera side of it. Um, you know, you got 30 extremely talented photographers coming in, you know, helping, you know, make sure they have all the right gear, you know, know which venues they're going to know where your VLAN cable is and, you know, working with editors on site. And then working with editors offsite, different time zones. There's a lot that goes into it. And I'm sure if you planned everything right for two years, then naturally something's still going wrong and you're putting out fires every day. I'm Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. There's, I mean, it's like, it's like everything else. You just, it, it's always, there's always something that's going to come up. You know, you can plan and plan and plan. There's always something that's going to come up. Does it almost feel like when you get done with something of that magnitude or even like this final four and obviously the robots are different and fun or, or doing all those logistics and doing all those things, which I know is not like there is specifically people that do that at Getty. So you're in probably a secondary role on that team. But when you get back 
uh, to normal a baseball assignment or a football game or something when you're done with that. Is that like kind of refreshing and relaxing? You just go back to normal taking pictures? I mean, it, yeah, it is. It is. And to be honest with you is, you know, much as baseball can be a grind, you know, I'm looking forward to the opening the Orioles home opener just because we're back in the photo wells. You know, it's back to normal baseball. That part, I am looking forward to that. Now, you asked me that same question in September when the Orioles and the, are playing the Blue Jays and both are mathematically eliminated. And I might give you a different answer. But <laughs> but yeah, and, and it's even even like a. a even like an event like the Kentucky Derby, I, that's I think that's a pretty good example. You know, I've missed. I've been doing the Kentucky Derby since 1986. Dang. Yeah, I was. A, that's I, gnarly. That's uh, yeah. I, I've been doing it since '86, and I've I've missed maybe three of them since then. Um, but going going back to an event like the Derby, number one, it's like going back to your high school reunion. Um because I get to see all the photographers that, you know, I've known over the years that, you know, came up the same time I did, you know, guys like Michael Clevenger, you know, the CJ get to see Dan dry and, you know, Barbara Livingston in the racing form. And, you know, all these, all these people that you see once a year and, you know, and then I'll see, there'll be a bunch of knucklehead friends that I went to college or high school with that I'll see. And, um, yeah, but, you know, to me, though, is, is going back to the Derby, what we've been doing at, at Getty is we've been bringing in, you know, it's always kind of the same three, three of us. It's myself and Jamie Squire and Andy Lyons, who lives in Louisville. Um, but we always try and bring in a couple new staffers. And the past couple of years, we've, we've also been like hiring one student from Western. Um, yeah. So just to kind of kind of to mix it up and to, you know, what other, other people on staff come in this year, you know, we've got, uh, Ezra Shaw from San Francisco is coming in and Carmen Mandato our one of our new photographers based in Houston is coming in. Um, but to me though, it, it's funny because Jamie and I were sitting at dinner the other night and we were talking about the Derby and, you know, we always try and do something different. It's like, you know, okay, how, what are we, yes, we're going to put six remotes under the rail. Yes. Somebody's going to do the head on. Yeah. We'll put, you know, a remote here, but it's at least Jamie and I, you know, it's always what, what else can we do that we haven't done before, you know, and trying to come up with that one picture that's just different. Um, you know, and we were brainstorming it's like, you know, I, I, I was thinking back on, you know, all these, derbies that I've done, you know, I've shot one from a helicopter. I shot, you know, one from the light pole at Papa John stadium during a breeder's cup, actually, you know, looking back at the finish. And, you know, I think we came up with a little idea we're going to try and pull off this year that, um, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping will work out good, but that's just an example of, of, you know, yeah, you, you're going to cover the, you're going to have the race covered, but what can you do to make something different and something unique that because as you well know, Brett, in this business, everything's been done, you know, uh, literally, that's all I was thinking the whole time you're saying this is like, while you said you've been there since 1986, all those other people you mentioned have also been there since 1986 or whatever. Right. So it's like all of you have tried everything for 30 plus years. Right. And, and even in the 30 plus years before that, Photographers like Heinz Klutmeyer had been doing 
the same things coming up with different ideas too. So, you know, they were, you know, pushing the envelope with the limited technology that they had in the seventies and eighties. Um, you know, now we have all the greatest technology in the world and, you know, we're still trying to come up with something. It's, a, it's the same thing, you know, while, you know, as much as things have changed, they, in a lot of ways, they stay the same. Yeah. I'm going to, I'd put $20 on someone accidentally eye focusing on a horse's face and acting like they did it on purpose. Well, <laughs> that's, well, that, that's the thing. And, you know, that's been a kind of a game changer as well with these cameras being able to accurately follow focus. You know, that's, that's my thing this year. You know, I'm going to put six R3s under the rail and they're all going to be on tracking. Yeah. Um, I've, you know, I have, I've used that tracking before. Um, and I kid you not, I got more usable frames out of ever tracking remote camera than I could ever get on pre-focusing. Yeah, but it's amazing. It really is. So one thing I was thinking of is, uh, maybe you try shooting the Derby on a Polaroid camera and like, that would be really cool. Uh, no, no. <laughs> uh, I'm not wearing a Carhartt beanie, but I should be right now to say something like that. Yeah. And you don't, uh, you don't have any donut tattoos, so that's okay. I know. Yeah. I'm glad that we both know that we're lovingly teasing Doster. <laughs> yes, we are. We are. We are. Uh, don't take who's it now going to hear this and yell at me. Don't take it personal, Aaron. <laughs> Exactly. So we've talked a lot about everything around photography. Let's talk a little bit about the actual photograph. And I want to hear like what really makes an amazing sports photograph to you. I think Elsa, I kind of touched on this a little bit, but like, you know, you look at a lot of photography, you mentored some people, you told me which corner of the end zone to go to the first time we worked together, which was pretty much like mentoring me. Um, what what do you see in a photograph that you're just like, yeah, this is what we should be aiming for? Because I think a lot of people I talk to that are young, uh, it seems, I don't know, somewhat obvious to me, but I think like a lot of people don't ever think about that. Like just the brass tacks of like, what is a great sports photograph? Uh, I mean, I think it's it's hard to define in. I think it's hard to define what really is a great sports photograph. I, I think. I, I think there's more to being a good sports photographer than just one photograph. Um, you know, you can come away with one banger from a, from an NFL game, but if you send in 25 crappy other photos that, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a whole, you know, you, you have to be, it's, it's a whole package. You got to be the whole package. I mean, going out and just, you know, trying to make that one killer picture, but if you can't fill in the gaps with the other thing, then you're really not doing your job. Um, yeah, I think that is, uh, that's, a, that's a really great point, actually, because I think sometimes, especially, you even said it earlier, you know, you can go check Instagram and see what other people are making. And I worked as an editor a little bit, and also I just am the type of person to dig around. And I've definitely seen people post something on Instagram that's pretty amazing, then you go look at what they filed or the rest of the, you know, the coverage. And it's kind of like, like, I don't, I don't know if it's like bad, but it's like, did you, you know, you're definitely picking the cream of the crop here, I guess, rather than having like a consistent performance throughout the game. And right. And I think that's what it is. But, but I also think it's, it's also, you know, knowing your, knowing who you're covering, you almost, I almost photograph a football game 
like I'm a defensive coordinator. And it's funny, you get to the point, I've been covering the Ravens long enough, and John John Harbaugh and I started the exact, I started in Baltimore the same time he came to Baltimore. Um, I can predict what they're going to do in the red zone just as well as he can. Um, But I think it's important knowing that sort of stuff. It's almost like you're playing the game yourself, you know, what you think they might do in this certain situation. Um, and that dictates what lens you pick up in the end zone. Um, and, you know, there are sometimes I'll go to the side of the end zone. There's sometimes I go to the back of the end zone. There's sometimes I'll shoot it from the 10 yard line. And I, I think that's to me. And, it, and it's like baseball, you know, and I've, I've said this to people before. Being a photographer is a lot like being a baseball player. Um, a baseball player sometimes will go 0 for 4. Sometimes a baseball player will go 2 for 4. And sometimes they'll go 4 for 4 and hit a walk-off home run that wins the game. And that's how you are as a photographer. You're not going to go out and go 4 for 4 and bat 500 every year in and year out. You're going you're gonna to miss pictures. You're going to misplay things. You're going to go to second when you should have went to third. Um, but I think in like shooting baseball, that's how I kind of look at it. It's like, you're playing it, you know, you got, you're going to anticipate that this guy's got speed. And if that ball goes, you know, shallow in the uh, outfield, he's going to try and go to third. Um, so to me, that's the fun part of it. And that's what kind of still keeps me kind of, you know, keeps me kind of interested. It's like, you know, can I, can I figure this out? You know, can I be ahead of the curve? I think like what I love about sports specifically is like you can't really be reactive. And that's kind of what I'm taking away from what you're saying right now. Like you can't watch the play develop and then decide what picture to make. You kind of almost have to have an idea or a a, guess might be the right word, but you're kind of predicting what's going to happen next in the game. And you have to kind of be ready for that situation, whether that's picking a place on a football field or, you know, like you said, like, hey, this guy they got a guy in second there's no play for or there's no play at second so he's gonna try to come home or on a, on a single or something like that and kind of be ready for that before it happens rather than like flopping around with cameras trying to like get the shot after the play's already like underway right and i think the other thing too is if if you go to a baseball game and and you walk away with a couple good frames you know and you feel like you know you you, you went three for four um you know the next night you can come around and you can have a boring donut of a game that's one to nothing and you don't make a single picture off of it but you've got to kind of be like a baseball player and you got to pick yourself up and just and you're only as good as your last picture so you just got to kind of get back out there and do it again and try and do it better what do you think keeps you like motivated year after year um to keep pushing forward i i keep coming back to the fact that you're like i want to stay ahead of the curve on things and it's so funny that in our Patreon episode and kind of earlier, we talked about these robots and this tech stuff. And it's just so funny to me that like the young people I know don't know anything about this stuff. And it's so something that I would think like, oh, young people know all about the tech and this, that and the other thing. And a lot of times, a lot of stuff I've learned in this industry that's like really technical has been from people who have been around the block for a while. Um, so what keeps you like going to like either photographically or technically or whatever, like keep pushing forward? Um, I think the technology, um, is, is a good thing that, that kind of keeps me going. I, you know, I enjoy doing this robotic stuff. Um, you know, we've, we switched from, you know, to mirrorless cameras at Getty, all of us, we all switched to the 
Canon R3s. Um, I think being this able... This is why no one's pre-order will show up because 4,000 of them went to get <laughs> um, No comment. Um, I, I think seeing the... Uh, seeing the changes and, and seeing what you can do with the new technology, uh, it kind of keeps me kind of fired up. I mean, being able to the, the focus systems on these new cameras, whether it's Canon or Sony or Nikon, whatever, you know, I, I just go back to shooting horse racing with a, a Nikon F3 and a very early model of the 70 to 200 that you, you know, were manually focusing and you pre-focused and hoped like hell you got the horse with all four feet off the ground crossing the finish line. Um, you know, now we're talking about, you know, putting remote cameras down with face detection software that's going to get you 25 images where you never would have gotten that before. Yeah. Um, that part's fun. Um, and I, I think the other thing too is, is part of me still goes back to being, uh, a kid. I'm I'm not a I'm not a fanboy um when it comes to sports. You know, people ask me all the time, you know, who's who's your favorite team? Well, okay, I grew up in Northern Kentucky. Yes. Did I enjoy seeing the Bengals in the Super Bowl? Yes, it was great. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm a fan of this the sport, the game. Um it, it's it's fun to to when you look back on your career and, and even looking ahead of it that, you know, some of the some of the players and some of the things that you know I've been able to photograph over the years. You know, I mean, being able to walk off the field with Tom Brady in Phoenix, Arizona, when they won, you know, is pretty cool. Uh, being at Augusta National when Tiger won his first Masters, that's another pretty cool event when you stop and think about it. Um, you know, and I and I think that's the one really thing that I, I've always kind of I don't take this for granted. Um, it, it's, you know, this, this job, this career, it's, it's enabled me to go all over the world, you know, something I wouldn't normally be able to afford, you know, to go to places like Europe and Australia and, and China. Um, and you know, that to me is, is been a great way to see the world. And, you know, I always jokingly say, you know, it beats having a real job, you know, and, and the other thing that I, that I tell, you know, that I, that I tell people, I say, you know, this this job, it's a great job. It's a fun job. It really is. But at the end of the day, it's still a job. It beats putting tar roofs on trailers in South Carolina in July. I'll, yes, I will, it does. I'll tell you that right now. So. I uh, recently have been saying to a lot of people, uh, COVID kind of messed up a lot of stuff for me as a freelancer. And then it kind of came back, kind of went away. And uh, it's kind of changed my strategy, you know, being freelance and all that stuff. But I've definitely this last six months I've said like some days this is what everyone thinks it is. And some days this is work. And like, you know, today it was work and I've had right. a bunch of stuff I've done in the last six months that I've been like, yeah, this was just work today. Like this is not some awe inspiring experience. Uh, and it sounds like it's still true if you have a staff job too. <laughs> well, it, yeah, it is. And and the one thing that I, I, you know, you brought up an interesting point that something that's been on the back of my mind during COVID, the thing I think that was hard, not just for me, I think, I think it was hard for a lot of photographers and I don't think it was something that was talked about a whole lot was, you know, when, when sports started coming back, okay. You know, we were shooting from a suite at NBA with a 400, you know, we were shooting from the concourse through a net at baseball. 
you know, the same thing with hockey, you know, football, we're shooting from the stands, you know, you're trying to get to the corner of the end zone and your knee hits a cup holder and you're yelling curse words and nobody's there to hear you because there's nobody in the stadium. But to me, I think the hardest part at the height of COVID was going to a game and sending 30, 40, 50 pictures from a game. And then you look back at your take and you're like, there's not a single picture I like in here. You know, they were good. You know, they were solid images, but they were all elevated. You know, you had weird crops, weird, you know, feet growing out of people's heads because of what you're what you're over. And I think a lot of times that was hard for a lot of creative photographers to to be kind of handcuffed by this. Um, I I had that problem. And also I had the uncertainty. I was pretty convinced we were not going to go back. I was, too. I was. I was. Very convinced that most of these sports leagues and mainly the TV networks um, who I don't interact with, but I had the theory that like they have what they want now, like they have the whole sideline, you know, and I was so frustrated that like magically there was some way for them to be safe and be on the field, but not us. Um, And that was very frustrating to me. And I was like, well, if they're doing it now. So I was super worried about that during the whole COVID sports thing. But yeah, it was it was terribly draining to like go to a football game, my favorite sport. And I had to switch agencies because there was some things changing and miscommunications or whatever and working for a new company and then doing their assignment the way they wanted it, which wasn't as creative as what Getty was doing. And then also the photos that came out of it were trash, you know? Right. And right. I was like, I was like, great. I went and wasted my whole day and these all look like garbage. Yeah. And that was, that was a hard thing to process. And I think, um, you know, when I stepped on the field this year for the first, you know, NFL game, I was back on the field. It was like, wow, you know, I really missed being able to, you know, shoot this from this eye level. The pictures are so much better. So with everybody, I kind of got these three questions I ask everybody at the end of the episode and uh, just kind of open ended. Take them how you want them. But the first one is what's the lesson or something you know now that you wish you had learned a long time ago or something you wish you could teach yourself, you know, 15, 20 years ago? Just to be patient. Just to be patient that, you know, I I think there's too much instant gratification and satisfaction among people coming up in the business today. Um, You know, this, this profession is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And if, you get everything early on in your career, in your life, you're going to really run the risk of, of, of burning yourself out. Um, and, and, and I think sometimes you just got to take a deep breath and, and just not get too spun up and not get too, uh, too full of yourself. You know, I mean, literally let's stop and think about it. You know, we're at the end of the day, we're making pictures of, of grown men playing kids sports. We're not curing cancer. Um, yeah, uh, I, I think that's the thing, you know, it just just to be patient, you know, I, I mean, I think all of us, you know, want success very all of us want success and we, we want it instantly. Um, I, I think people coming up in today's business are able to see things more in real time and how they how they work and how they react. Um, but, you know, sometimes it takes some patience to get to the level that you want to get to in this profession. Yeah, I kind of had a conversation like that with a kid I mentor recently, and uh, I, he was 
got a lot of opportunities working very hard, similar to what I did or what sounds like you did. And, and that's obviously awesome and why I'm mentoring him and taking the time. But almost <clears throat> almost too much like looking at the exit and like what's next, what's next. And I kind of told him like, hey, man, like you got to take advantage of what you're doing now and like make the most of it and really deliver on the things you're doing now because otherwise you're going to like close doors ahead of you because you're just like going to the next thing. Yeah. And I, I think technology has advanced that in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's amazing. And there's a lot of stuff to be done. And I think it's also like in the, 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 the way we see life now through Instagram and things like that. Uh, and then also the lie of Instagram, you know, and, and I get really frustrated and, and speak out against like the people who are at certain things without being paid right or being paid at all or whatever. And I think a lot of people see that and they're like, Oh, well this person's already doing the thing. And it's like, well, they're doing the thing, but they're not doing it for any money or they're getting abused by the person hiring them or whatever. And it's like, so yes, they, they have went to the place you want to go, but they're not going to be there very long because they're not making any money or they're, they're being treated poorly or whatever. Um, I think it just speeds that process up and that fear, that FOMO, that fear of missing out or whatever that a lot of people think like, I should be doing that or whatever. The second question is, what is something you just got to have with you everywhere you go on assignment? Um, You know, obviously cameras and things like that. But what's something you just always have with you? You got to have, you know, I I have to have my my trusty uh, think tank airport roller that I've had since 2006 with me. It's just it's just my constant traveling companion and i have have repaired it and done everything to it over the years and thankfully it's it's still rolling on i had a little scare here, here in new orleans with it but i was able to rectify the zipper and get it get it um because my think tank airport that i have it's like a pair of it's like i've got a pair of cowboy boots that i've had since i was probably 17 years old and they are so well broken in and fit me so well they've they've been resold three times that they're the most comfortable pair of boots in the world and and it's it's the same thing with with my think tank bag it is it every lens fits in there perfectly uh it's probably not the right way it's supposed to go but i've been able to make it work for me dude i have a think tank i've had i don't know i had a backpack out of college and that was like the way i did it and then my back just always hurt and i and I ha- I kept the backpack after college because like working in I lived in Pennsylvania, but I would like cover Syracuse and Buffalo and like that walk from the, the car to the tunnel at Buffalo Bill Stadium was never clean. And I was like getting a roller bag and me dragging through all this mud and slush and snow and whatever. And so then I switched the think tank roller and I can tell you that I've had that same one for probably going on eight to ten years now. And it is just I drug it through all of those terrible, salty, snowy, slushy crap for years, and it is fine. Like it just works perfect still, and it's amazing to me how much crap it's been through. The wheels are a little bowed out now, and they probably need some TLC, but it still works perfect. And you're right; it's just like everything somehow magically fits into that bag. It it does, and I've had three sets of wheels on it, a new handle, new lock, new safety cable lock. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of it's it's like you know when you're walking out the door and you're looking for your wallet and your keys, it's like okay, where's that little bag? I gotta go. Dude, yeah, I've actually kept my Super Bowl security tag on it, and the people at Titan Stadium here in Bridgestone, 
I like always ask them, like, hey, can you just keep that on? Like, and they're just like, are they always like confused? And then like three games into the season this year, they were like, oh, this is Super Bowl guy. Yeah, just don't take that red tag off. And I was like, I've trained them well. Like, it's just sentimental. I don't know why. I like just trying to keep it on there for the rest of the bag's life. I'm, it's my goal. The last question is, we have a pretty diverse audience in the sense that we have people ranging from college students or hobbyists that are looking to get into this more heavily, all the way up to like full-time photo editors that I know listen to the show. Hi, Jason. Um, what is something that you'd like to say or or teach these people, kind of like a soapbox moment? Like, what's something you'd want them to take away from this episode? I think the only thing that I will say is no matter what your skill set is, um, where you're at, whether this is a profession, a hobby, or whatever thing, I, I think the thing that I can't emphasize more is is helping, as we were talking about earlier, this is a very small business. Um, I, you know, no matter if you, who you work for, if you're, you know, working for, you know, Getty, the AP USA Today, the local newspaper, whoever, it's, it's a very small profession and, you know, you got to look out for each other um, because you're not only looking out for each other, but you're looking out for the profession. And I think keep the integrity of this profession um, is something that needs to, you know, that is needs to be handed down to, you know, the different people that are coming into it and, and keeping the, just keeping the integrity and the ethics of what we do real um, kind of goes back to your thing about Instagram. You know, you can cook images, you know, it looks like you ran them through a Viking oven. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's, it's about the subject matter and what's in it. And I just, I think keeping the integrity of this business is, is the one thing that I would, that I think needs to, you know, that's the one thing I would go on a soapbox about is like, you know, keeping it real. Don't overcook your images. You know, it is what it is. We're, we're there to document it. You know, we're not there to change it or influence. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm in my thirties and, uh, I've gotten pretty firm about like standing up against some stuff in the industry business wise, usually behind closed doors, sometimes not. Um, and the ethics and stuff like that. And I think it's like you kind of at some point realize that it's just on everybody's shoulders to do that stuff. Um, and there's no like magical person that's going to come in and fix problems in the industry. And it's like if you kind of don't gut check some people or, or gut check yourself to like be better, then it just kind of slowly goes that way. Um, personally, I have a lot of vendettas against people that work for no money or work for an undervalued rate. Uh, or the people that pay them undervalued rates. But uh, it also comes down to imagery and stuff like that too, you know? Um, seeing somebody cheering for a team on the sideline, you know, versus taking the picture or seeing somebody, you know, beat the piss out of the image in Photoshop, that's also something I get pretty upset about too. Yes, yes, I do. And that's why, uh, you know, from my own personal standpoint, you know, my my I don't post work pictures on my personal Instagram account. Um, I tend to post pictures of my dog and, you know, and run them through Snapseed and, you know, uh, try and give them, you know, what, what I, what I see of the image. Um, but in no way is that an editorial, um, in an editorial way, uh, you know, I stick to my guns on the, on the, uh, on the editorial end of it. Um, but you know, Instagram can be very deceiving. So, yeah, to say the least. 
Man, well, this was a fun talk. I hope people got a lot out of it. Um, for those that want to reach out to you or find your work, obviously they can find your work by typing in Rob Carr, C-A-R-R, on Getty Images and see your stuff. Um, but where else can they link up with you if they want to give you a follow or uh, keep up with what you're doing? Well, if they want to see pictures of my dog, Koba, they can uh, follow me at Rob Carr 4 on Instagram. Um that's about the only social media platform where I really do anything. And it's mainly just Instagram stories of my dog and, and silly pictures from new Orleans. I'm into it. That's way better than pictures of basketball. I'm not a basketball. Well, I mean, that's, (laughs) that's the kind of way I look at it. And, um, I'm not knocking anybody who posts their pictures on their, their work pictures on Instagram. I get it. Um, but for me, that's what that platform is for me. And like I said, if you want to see my work, you can find my name in at gettingimages.com. Awesome, man. Well, thanks for taking the time to come on. I really hope you have a great game tonight and uh, no robots fall from the sky. All right, Brett. Good talking with you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Reciprocity Podcast. Please take a moment to subscribe and rate us five stars on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found value in this podcast and want to learn even more, head over to patreon.com slash reciprocitypodcast to support the show. 